If you brought your Bibles with you today, let me encourage you to turn to the New Testament letter of Colossians. Today we begin chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 2 in just a moment. The title of this morning's message is How to Rescue a Dying Church. How to Rescue a Dying Church. I've said it before, and I want to underscore it again, that the church in North America, unlike the church in the rest of the world, the church in North America is dying. And it's in need of help. This morning, as you and I worship here, Less than 20% of the American population is in church with us. And in the next five years, that number is going to drop down to some 15% of the American population. Far from being a majority, we are a decreasing minority. In Arkansas, for the last several years, I was part of a group of men and women who are passionately devoted to the 15 hundred churches that are called Arkansas Baptist, Arkansas Baptist State Convention churches. And every year we needed to see approximately 20 to 30 new churches started in Arkansas. And our number did not increase significantly. Every year we started 20 or 30 churches, but we still had just 1,500 churches. Why? Because every year, about 20 to 30 churches in Arkansas close their doors. And they, they grow smaller and weaker and smaller and weaker until they have died. Now, what are the symptoms of a dying church? In those years of interacting with churches, we found several things to be indicators of a church that's in serious trouble. For example... I found seven symptoms. Here's one of them. Churches that are in the process of dying tend to be backward-looking. They're always looking to the past. You'll find a memorial on every pew, on every door, on every piece of furniture in the church. Now, there's nothing wrong with honoring people. We did that today. But when we are always looking to the past and we are not looking to the forward, to the future, there is something seriously in trouble with the church. A second symptom of a dying church is they tend to spend most of their money on themselves. Their giving beyond the walls of their church grows smaller and smaller and smaller until their mission giving is almost nil. In fact, at the time that most, closes, most churches close their doors, 98% of their giving is spent right there, locally, on their church. There's a third symptom of a dying church. They start fighting about everything. They don't need much excuse to fight, and they tear each other emotionally to shreds. A fourth symptom of a dying church, pastors turn over more frequently. Uh, they come and go with greater frequency, and the church gains a reputation for not being able to keep a pastor. Facilities fall into disrepair. They don't notice that there are things that need to be painted. There are things that are broken. There are closets that are filled with things that should be cleaned out. They just don't see that anymore. And so their facilities fall into disrepair. The sixth thing, symptom of a dying church, they stop looking like their community. And they don't care. Over the passage of time, the community changes. It may get older, younger, 
It may become racially changed. It may be economically different. But in some way, the community changes, and the church doesn't change. And it doesn't look like the people who live next door. A few years ago, I was driving to a church to visit with them, to consult with them about what was happening to their church and their community. And I, I, I couldn't find it. My little GPS was not working. I couldn't locate the church. I got within a couple blocks of the church. I didn't know that. But I got within a couple blocks of the church, and there were some men standing outside by a car. And I went up to those guys, and I said, Hey, can you tell me where such and such Baptist church is? And they looked at each other, and they said, There's no Baptist church around here. Two blocks later, I found the church. And so that particular congregation, nobody in that neighborhood attended that church. People literally across the street couldn't tell you what kind of church it was. And many of them couldn't even tell you the name, even though the sign was right there in the front. And then the seventh symptom of a dying church, and this is no surprise, there's little or no outreach or numerical growth. They are content with the people that they have. But these are symptoms of a dying church, and they are symptoms of a more serious problem. These churches are poisoned by a form of toxic Christianity. And in chapter 2, that's what we're going to study. Now, when the church is being poisoned by toxic Christianity, who are you going to call? You're going to call a doctor. Now, I know that this is not a tall doctor, but you don't need a big doctor, okay? And this doctor comes and is able to look at your situation and diagnose your condition and diagnose your problem. Do we have a doctor for dying churches? Yes, we do. His name is Dr. Paul. The Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians helps us do that. Now, all I want you to do is see what a doctor looks like, and I'm going to let her go hide out now. Thank you, Dr. Paul. Okay. <laughs> in chapter 2, Paul's concerned that their understanding of Christianity is going to be changed somehow, influenced in some way, that causes it to be something less than the truth. We see this in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter. Paul says this, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. He's concerned that someone with logically sounding arguments is going to cause them to move away from the truth. Lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So this church, Colossae, is not yet poisoned. But he is concerned that they are about to be. And so he is giving them advice concerning prevention. And prevention is the best way to go. You don't ever want to get there. In the opening verses of chapter 1 through 7 that we're going to read, he is giving them the prevention information they need. And then he goes on and discusses in detail what toxic Christianity looks like. And during the month of May, we're going to look at chapter 2 in Colossians, and we're going to look in detail at what toxic Christianity looks like. But right now, he talks about prevention. Well, if a church is already dying... And churches around us are dying. Well, prevention's a little too late. But these verses are not only good advice 
for preventing toxic Christianity. The advice that he is giving, the counsel that Paul is giving, is also the solution or the cure for a church that's been infected or poisoned by toxic Christianity. So we want to look at that today. There are two parts to this solution to a dying church. What can we do about a dying church? Well, there's a corporate activity, corporate action, something we do together, and then there is individual action that you and I can choose to take. When churches around us are dying, first, we need to pray for God to transform every church. We need to pray for God to transform every church, and we've got to do that together. Now, the Apostle Paul is doing this on his own. He didn't ask them to pray with him. We don't know if someone else is praying with him. He's doing this on his own. And, and we can do that as well. He's praying as if he really believes that when he prays, God is going to do something in the church to keep it from being poisoned. And I believe that when we pray, we can ask God to do the same thing, to cure or heal a dying church. You know, most Sundays, when I arrive on this campus, I do the same thing I've done in most places where I've spoken over the last 10 years in Arkansas. I arrive early enough to where I can drive around the property. If you've ever seen me do that, you said, what is the preacher doing? Well, I don't always have time to prayer walk. I gotta watch my hair, and it's raining sometimes, and, and I gotta watch the humidity but I will prayer drive the property. And I'll drive around the property and I'll ask God to come to this church property and speak to people during our services, that our worship would please him, that he would take his word and make it come alive, that he would come into our services, that we would sense something of his presence and be changed forever by the very presence of God. Now, when I do that, Invariably, I find myself praying for other churches in Wynn, Arkansas. And I'll pray for a church down the street or next door. And then sometimes I can't think of all of them, and I can't. And I'll just say, Almighty God, would you come and fall on every church in Wynn, Arkansas? Lord, would you come and to every church that preaches your word and that lifts up your name, and would you come and fill that church today with your presence and, and enable those preachers to speak with power. Now, why do I do that? Why don't I just pray for Wind Baptist Church? Why isn't it good enough that Wind Baptist Church grow and be blessed by God? Let me tell you why. Because God loves the church. You're not going to find a lot of patience for me when we begin to become critical of other churches. Well, they shouldn't do that, they shouldn't do this. Listen, if they love the Lord Jesus, if they're preaching his word, if they are filled with Christians who've been truly been born again, the Father loves the bride. He loves the church, and it is not a perfect church. It ceased to be perfect when you and I showed up. It's not perfect, but the Father loves the church, and so should we. And the Apostle Paul loved the church. He had never been to this church, but he prayed for them anyway. And the best way to influence people for God is to pray and intercede with God for those people. And that's what Paul is doing. Look at verse 1. For I want you to know, 
What a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I wish we had time, we don't, to take every phrase apart. But here's what I want you to see. Paul is telling us four things about the kind of praying that can change a church. I want you to see this quickly. First, our praying needs to be consistent. It first and foremost needs to be consistent. In, in the opening phrase, he says, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have. And the words I have are present tense, meaning he is having it all the time. He's experiencing it all the time. He is praying all the time. It is a habit of life. Nothing, perhaps, is discussed more and practiced less in the church in North America than prayer. And I'm so thankful that recently here at Wind Baptist Church, we have a group of people we put together. They're kind of a prayer committee. And they are helping us grow in this area of prayer as a church. Last Sunday morning when we were worshiping the Lord Jesus at Wynn High School for Easter, we had people praying all through that service for every aspect of that service. And, and I praise God for that. So we need to be consistent in our praying. Paul was. We also need to be combative in our praying. What a great conflict I have. That word conflict is, is describing a competition, someone competing in a contest. It is a word that we get the word agony from, someone who's straining, someone who's working hard. Why is prayer combative? Why is it such a fight? Why is it such a struggle? Well, if you ever try to pray, you know the answer to that. How hard it is to concentrate, how hard it is to set that time aside, how hard it is to free your mind of distractions. It is a fight. And the enemy, the moment you set your heart to pray, will do everything he can to distract you from praying. It has to be combative. You have to be persistent. You have to keep pressing forward and asking and crying out to the Lord. And you say, well, doesn't that offend God to keep begging him, to keep asking him, to keep talking to him about the same thing? No, it does not offend him. It blesses him. He calls us to himself and is pleased when we are persistent and combative. Thirdly, Paul's prayer is consuming. Consuming. He says, what a great conflict I have. It's not a small one. It's huge. And it's massive, and it's consuming his mind. There's nothing small about it. And the number four, your praying and my praying needs to be concentrated. What is Paul focused on as he's praying? Well, look at very carefully at what he says. I have a great conflict for you and people in Laodicea and the people I've never met. What is the conflict about? Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. It's about the heart. And everything that follows is something that involves the heart. That their hearts can be encouraged, being knit together in love. Uh, he's talking about encouragement that, that is derived from a sense of community where our hearts are bound or intertwined to one another. And so we're encouraged, but that encouragement comes from my connection with the other people in the body of Christ. Now listen, I can't think of a more important reason 
that after this worship service, every Sunday, we have Bible study groups that you can be a part of. And one of the reasons your heart may not be encouraged the way the Father is ready to encourage your heart is because you are not participating fully in a small group Bible study. It is in that Bible study that your heart can be interwoven with somebody else's heart. It is necessary. It is essential. Your heart's not going to be interwoven with other people sitting here. I, I want us to worship together. We need to praise God together as one big group. We need to study His Word together like that. But your heart is going to be encouraged among a group of Christians who love each other. And so it's vital that you have a group of believers that your heart is intertwined with. And, and what happens in the context of this group, this corporate activity, where we love each other and our hearts are knit together and we're encouraged, what happens is this. He said, you become fully convinced or assured of the truth. It's in the context of community that your assurance of salvation, your assurance of the gospel grows. And not only that, he says that assurance of salvation is linked to something else that happens in a group. And that's your experience of the presence of Jesus Christ in here. He talks about the mystery of God. And we saw that earlier at the end of chapter 1. What is the mystery of God? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as you fellowship with other Christians, and you listen to how God is leading them and speaking to them, it's only natural that you begin to look in your own heart. And you begin to recognize God speaking to you, and God's voice, and God's leadership in your life. And so you become fully assured or convinced because of your own experience of an indwelling Christ. And so our praying needs to be concentrated. What are we praying for? We're praying that God would do something in people's hearts. When a church is dying, it is not an organizational problem. It is a heart problem. And so many doctors are spreading across our land with the solution to churches that are dying. But if we don't address the heart, it's going to fail. So corporately, something needs to happen. Paul prays. We need people to pray for the church in North America. We need people praying for Wynn Baptist Church. We need people praying for the churches in Wynn, Arkansas. We need people who are praying for all the churches in Cross County. We need people praying for the churches of our entire state. We need people to pray. But then there's an individual action that you can take. The second thing that Paul points to as the prevention or the solution for a dying church. Here it is, number two. We need to live every moment as a servant to the king. We need to live every moment as a servant to the king. Look at verse six. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving living every moment as a servant to the king look at verse 6 as you've received Christ so walk in him first thought you must receive him before you can walk in him I can't walk in Jesus if I've never received Jesus. Now, what's involved in receiving Jesus Christ? This is important. You, you say, well, I, I already know how a person receives Christ. Well, well hang with me because it, it should affect your walk. 
The first thing that's involved is you and I hear the truth, right? You can't be saved. You can't come to know Christ unless you've heard the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So you've got to hear the truth. You've got to understand the basic message that Jesus Christ died for sinners, that you're a sinner, and that you have, you've got to understand that he came to rescue you. He took your place on the cross, taking punishment that your sins deserve. You've got to hear the truth. And then there's turning or repentance that has to take place. I turn from a life where I'm trying to do things my way, I'm trying to rescue myself, change me, make myself better. I abandon all of that. I repent of that, and I turn to God. And that act of turning is very, very important. Because in the act of turning, I'm, I'm swearing off all of my self-effort to rescue me, and I'm turning to God as the only one who can rescue me. So there has to be truth, there has to be a turning, and then there has to be trust. You have to believe the message. You have to put your trust, your whole life in it in such a way that I'm staking my eternity on the truth of the gospel. And so I have to come and trust him. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes or trusts in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So before I can walk, I've got to receive him. Secondly, you can receive him and not walk in him. Otherwise, he wouldn't say verse 6. Verse 6 is a command to walk in him. And he's telling Christians to walk in him, which means that it's possible for a Christian not to walk in him. You can receive him and not walk in him. I can choose not to respond to him. I can choose not to follow him in my daily life. But listen, you'll never be sure of your salvation that way. Because you know in your heart of hearts that when you trust Christ, life is supposed to change. Things are supposed to be different. Number three, the way you receive him is the way you walk in him. The way you receive him is the way you walk in him. When you were saved, you did not receive a religion or simply a church membership. You didn't receive just being part of a church, but he says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. You received a person, not a set of doctrines, not just a set of beliefs. You received Jesus, and Jesus Christ is the Lord. And he says, as you received, or in the same manner that you received him, that's how you are to walk. There's a point at which you stop trusting in yourself trusting in your ideas, trusting in your conceptions of God and what it means to be right with God. You stopped trusting in that, and you started trusting in him. Well, walking with Jesus is very similar. You have to stop trusting in yourself. You have to let something go. You have to take the truth when you understand what God wants for your life. You have to turn from your decisions, your choices, and you have to turn to that truth, and you have to trust Jesus. Walking with Jesus is so vital that he commands us to do it. So it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of simply trusting him. It's not about trying. It's about trusting. Walking is actively believing that first. 
the Lord has a plan. Do you believe the Lord has a plan for your life? He does. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, one of the first verses I learned, even before I was a Christian, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, and the good works which God before ordained that we should walk in them. And when I read that verse, it tells me that there was something I was made to do. He talks about being created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's something that God made you to do. You were created for a reason. It tells you that it's part of a plan that God already has for you. He said it's something that God prepared beforehand. Before you were saved, before you knew Christ, he knew you. He knew you in your heart level. He knew what you would be. He knew how you would respond, and he had a plan for you. And that plan is something God already has in place. And it's not a series of acts. It's not a series of go here and serve and go here and serve. It's not about do this for that person or do this for this person. This plan that God has is about your entire life. It's about every day of your life. It's about every moment of your life. He said that these are things God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not just once in a while, but all the time. And so the Lord has a plan. If I'm going to walk with him, I've got to believe that. That this day counts. That this moment counts. That this conversation with this person I'm having counts. That God has a will. God has a plan. God has something he created me for in this very moment. The Lord has a plan. Walking is also actively believing that the Lord will lead. Not only does he have a plan, he will lead you. You and I are supposed to live our life in conscious submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, he says, so walk in him. And the way he illustrates this, there's a really clear picture of this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. We're going to look at that this summer. But right now, I want you to see this verse. He's talking to the slaves in the first century. Now, we, we don't believe slavery is right. We've abolished slavery, and rightly so, but this was a fact, a reality of life for so many people in Paul's day. And so he advises them. He says in verse 22, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now think with me about that passage. By law, this slave was owned by a master, body and soul, he had no rights. A doulos, a slave, had no privileges, no rights, he was the property of someone else. And Paul tells him to obey that master in all things as if you were serving Jesus. And the truth is, as a believer, every moment you are to serve Jesus, no matter what your station in life, no matter what you have or don't have. Now, how many ways or how many times or in how many moments or how many things is this slave to serve his master like he's serving Jesus? Well, what did he say? Bond servants obey in what? All things. Can you imagine a church full of members who are living their life to please the Lord in everything? 
That's not a dying church, is it? That's going to be a pretty exciting place to be. And then the third thing, walking is actively believing that the Lord lives within. You can't do it in your own strength. He never called you to serve him using your ingenuity, your plans. He has a plan. He, uh, he promises to lead you. You don't have to figure it all out. He's going to guide you. Some think you're saved by grace, but you live by works. They try to be good. They try to serve the Lord Jesus, and they get frustrated by their own failures. There's a better way. When you were saved, when you first became a Christian, you were like a brand new Mustang convertible. Your whole life was new. And you were made to go. You were made to do things. You were made to be powerful. You were made to to accomplish things. But a Mustang convertible... When it's empty on the inside, it's not going anywhere. What has to happen? Somebody has to climb in. Somebody has to get behind the wheel. Somebody has to turn it on and drive it and steer it. You know, the Bible says that's exactly what has happened to you and to me. That in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, a verse we saw two weeks ago, he talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Striving, Paul says, according to his working, which works in me mightily. He comes and indwells the convertible. He fires it up, and off we go. But only he can be in the driver's seat. Walking in him means to live my life in the presence of an indwelling Christ. Some 25 years ago, Gail and I lived in Los Angeles, and everything has to do with a parking garage. If you're going anywhere, you're going to use a parking garage. Off-street parking just doesn't exist. And uh, we pulled in this parking garage, and we were kind of in a hurry. We were meeting some people in a restaurant in this building. And I pulled in, and there, were, there was a parking space just right by the attendance booth right there. And the door to the restaurant was right there. And I start to pull in. He says, sir, would you mind parking over there? I said, well, sir, I, I really would rather park right there. There's an empty place. He said, no, I I need you to park over there. I was in my 20s. And I flashed at him. I flared up my temper. I said, wait a minute. I know, you know, you're the attendant. I'm the driver. I'm paying for this deal. There's an empty space. I want to park right there. No, 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 no. He says, you need to park over there. And it just kind of went downhill from there. Well, I parked where he wanted me to park. I walked in the restaurant. We were meeting some other believers for lunch. (laughs) And you know, before I even got in the door, Jesus Christ, who lives in me, challenged me. He said, Don, that guy was in charge of that parking garage, not you. He's the one who was in authority at that moment, not you. And, um, and could you tell him about me now? I mean, that's what, what he brought to mind. And I told Gail and I told the kids, I said, excuse me. <laughs> I walked back out to that parking garage. I walked up to that tenant's booth, and he kind of backed up from the window. <laughs> he did. And I said, excuse me. I said, I was wrong to argue with you. 
I said, I'm sorry. I said, will you forgive me? He said, oh, no, 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 no problem. You know, he kind of sent me on my way. When you and I walk in him, the Lord who has a plan, the Lord who leads, the Lord who lives within, he guides us in that walk. Other times he prompts us to do things. I was prompted to call somebody this week to do something. Um, he's going to speak tomorrow. And when I called Kenny about speaking tomorrow, um, I discovered God had prompted me that morning. I said, Lord, who do you want me to ask to speak on Monday at the monthly men's luncheon? The Lord said, Kenny Moore, brought him to mind. I called Kenny Moore up, and I told Kenny what I wanted him to talk about. I said, would he consider that? He said, I got to. He said, I've been telling the Lord for two weeks if I had that opportunity, I, I was supposed to do that. I'm not that smart. You're not either. But when you and I are led, when he understand that he has a plan and when he indwells us, he prompts us, he guides us. It's not in our strength. It's not in our effort. At home, you wrong your wife. You say something you shouldn't say to her. He convicts you. He guides you. He causes you to make the first move, to apologize, to make it right. That is walking in him, being sensitive to his voice. If he is the Lord, we are supposed to obey specific instructions from him. The only way to save a dying church, we need a church to begin to pray. A church that will pray for the hearts of Christians everywhere, that God would do a mighty work in those hearts. We need on a personal level to surrender and say, you are Lord. I received you as Lord, and now I surrender myself to you. I want, just as I received you into my life, to rescue me, and I rested in you. So I'm resting today in you. I'm resting in this moment in you. I'm resting in every conversation with you, every decision, everything that happens to me, Lord. I am resting in you. Guide me. Show me. Empower me. Church can't die with people like that. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. I thank you for your attentiveness and your patience today, We've, it's been a good day, a neat day. But right now, we want to be turning our attention, our hearts, to hear Jesus. And in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And it's our way of responding to him. And if the words on the screen enable you to say what you need to say to the Lord, would you please sing and sing from the heart? If God has spoken to you about your relationship to him, maybe you just need to bow your head as we stand. And you just need to bow your head and say, Lord, I've not been living for you. And I'm seeing the consequences of that. My life is broken. My, my life's a mess. Things aren't what they ought to be. And there are people depending on me, people who need me, Lord. I want to walk with you. And you may need to just take a moment and surrender. Repent, surrender. To Jesus as Lord in a new way, a fresh way today. Maybe you're here and you realize this morning you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When we stand and sing, I want to invite you to come. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Come. Take one of these pastors by the hand. Say, I want to be saved. Please share with me the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, how a person can know him. These men will share scripture with you. They'll pray with you. They'll answer your questions. You can read it for yourself how Jesus died for your sins on the cross. Come and be saved today.
our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. And Lord Jesus, Lord, we welcome you here to this place. Father, it's rainy and storming outside, and even if it was a sunny day, we know that spiritually there's a storm cloud hanging over North America. We want to be the people that you use to turn it around. And so, Lord, would you raise up among us leaders in prayer, men and women who will devote themselves to seeking your throne and calling on your name on behalf of your people, just like Paul did. And then, Father, for each of us, would you bring us to ever greater levels of surrender to you and your lordship in our life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives within every Christian. Would you guide us now in these moments as we open up this altar. May our hearts be open to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.